Hello, and welcome to the Human Instrumentality Podcast, your guided deep dive into the seminal animated series, Neon Genesis Evangelion. I'm Ian Corey. And I'm Joseph Schaefer. Together, we are your hosts, and you're listening to the first installment of our podcast, which we're calling Unit Zero. Why would we call the first part of something Unit Zero, you might ask? Two reasons. First, it's a reference to part of the series. If you didn't know that, this means this is your first time watching the show, and boy am I jealous. Second, because this is going to be a deep dive, we're going to recap the plot of Evangelion, but also talk about its cultural impact, its production, and the tangled web of references, codes, and symbols that have made the show such an enduring classic of animated television and visual storytelling in general. To do that, we need context. We need backstory. That's this episode, The Backstory. A brief history of Evangelion, its production, the story behind its eccentric director, and a quick overview of anime in general. The whole shebang in one, hopefully, easy-to-digest package. We made this podcast with the idea that it would appeal to diehard Ava fans and people who've never watched it before. Maybe even people who have never watched anime before. So, if you feel like you already know all this, if you can tell your Dead Sea Scrolls from your Duroc Seas, feel free to skip ahead. But if you have no idea what I was just talking about, then we recommend you listen to this installment first. But for now, Human Instrumentality Podcast Unit Zero, launch! Neon Genesis Evangelion is an anime, an animated television series from Japan that was first released in 1994. Broadly speaking, it's a science fiction series about teenagers during the apocalypse. And while it's a series that has a lot of appeal to people who aren't anime obsessives, it also spends a lot of time calling back to other pieces of animation. It was made by people who grew up watching anime and has a habit of playing with anime's tropes, so... Let's talk about the history of anime for a second. The Japanese animation industry began in earnest after World War II. Post-war Japan, deeply scarred by its defeat and dealing with the figurative fallout of the atomic bombs detonated over Hiroshima and Nagasaki, turned to fiction for escapism and self-reflection. That fiction came in the form of cheap-to-produce comics, or manga, which sold well and easily translated into animated films. Japan has a long history of stylized art like Yukio-e painting and kabuki theater, and those sensibilities translated naturally into animation. Anime conveyed many of Japan's popular interests, from historic samurai stories to science fiction, both of which often expressed the trauma of World War II in one way or another. Popular series like Tetsuan Adam and Tetsujin 28 Go, known in America as Astro Boy and Gigantor, featured robots as their primary characters. Quickly Giant Robots, or Mecha, became a tentpole genre inside of anime. In the early 70s, an artist named Go Nagai, his series Mazinger Z was the first show to put a pilot inside of a robot while also launching a successful line of toys. 
making Mecha a highly profitable genre. Mazinger Z portrayed Mecha as superheroes in an overstimulating world of sex and violence. Nagai's show also sold well internationally, helping to open America up to Japanese animation. In the late 70s, Mecha experienced a breakthrough with the series Mobile Suit Gundam. Gundam portrayed Mecha more realistically as weapons of war, and its story focused on the psychology and morality of its flawed main characters. It also sold toys like crazy. Gundam animation has been in production more or less constantly since 1979, and its success helped usher in a renaissance of hand-drawn Japanese animation in the 80s. Shows like Mazinger Z and Gundam were foundational influences on a young man named Hideki Anno, the creator and director of Neon Genesis Evangelion. Born in 1960 in a city called Ube on Japan's Inland Sea, Anno was a lifelong otaku in the American sense. In Japan, the world otaku means an obsessive fan of any particular topic. But in America, otaku has come to mean, in particular, a lover of Japanese animation. Consuming a steady diet of animated television and manga, Anno proved himself a talented artist at a young age and got his first job as an animator on the show Super Dimensional Fortress Macross while he was still in college. Macross was later imported to America as Robotech and remains a popular property to this day. In both countries, it gained fans for its serialized storytelling, intensely psychological characters, and hyper-detailed animation style. All ideas that Anno took with him to Evangelion. But there was a dark side to Macross. The hyper-detailed animation that made it popular was produced from the labor of often overworked, underpaid, usually contract animators. Anno was one of them. In his career, he often found himself sleeping under his desk, living off of junk food, and coping with intense anxiety and depression. In spite of that, Anno's star rose. He found himself working with Hayao Miyazaki in the 80s. That name may be familiar to some listeners. Miyazaki is probably the most respected Japanese animator in America, thanks to films like My Neighbor Totoro and the Academy Award-winning Spirited Away all products of Miyazaki's legendary studio Ghibli. Anno was an early Ghibli employee. He worked on the studio's first film, Nausicaa and the Valley of the Wind, a dark, post-apocalyptic sci-fi epic with environmentalist themes. More ideas that Anno would carry with him. Of course, Anno animated the film's dark and violent climax. Anno's tenor at Ghibli was short, Though Miyazaki and Anno remain friends, and Miyazaki has even named him successor to the anime Major Domo Throne, Anno was let go after Nausicaa. He and a few other talented animators founded their own studio, Gainax, an animation house intended to produce high-quality entertainment by otaku for otaku. Gainax was one of many new production houses in the 80s, buoyed by the lucrative influx of VHS sales. Many of these houses used that budget and the freedom of video to push the envelope of what anime would allow. 
This was the environment that produced seminal works like the film adaptation of Akira and the genre's auteurs, people like Satoshi Kon and Mamoru Oshii. Ano directed one of Gainax's first hits, a film called The Wings of Honamise, and later a short giant robot show with a melancholic edge called Gunbuster. He remained in Miyazaki's shadow, though. Rather than an original work, his second project as director wound up being an idea that Miyazaki had pitched earlier and then abandoned an adaptation of Jules Verne's classic novel, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Renamed Nadia, Secret of the Blue Water, the series aired in 1990 at the tail end of anime's most creative era, in my opinion. Nadia was a hit with animation fans, but Anno had very little creative control over the project, and at times its storytelling lags. After the series, he fell into a deep, life-changing depression. While Anno recuperated... The golden age of 80s anime was coming to an end. Massive televised adaptations of children's comics like Dragon Ball Z and Sailor Moon gained a stranglehold on the airwaves. Even Mobile Suit Gundam seemed out of steam in 1994. The series abandoned its original storyline and rebooted as the more juvenile G Gundam a show that discarded the original mecha show's stern realism and replaced them with kung fu movie tropes and mecha designed to sell even more toys than before. The anime industry was ready for someone to flip the table. That's exactly what Anno did. He bounced back from his psychological hardship with the concept for a new show, one that would reconcile the mythic storytelling of early mecha shows like Mazinger Z with the more sophisticated artistic tendencies that he picked up from Gundam, Macross, and Miyazaki's films. That's the show we're talking about. Neon Genesis Evangelion. The little mecha show that made Anno's career and nearly killed him. A series which remains maybe the high watermark for televised animated storytelling. It's a show that changes lives. It changed mine. And mine. And that's why we're making this podcast. So that's the context in a macro sense, no pun intended. A macross sense? A macross sense. There you go. But I think it's also worth saying that this is not just a show that matters in sort of the broader historical context of anime, but it also as our summary alluded to, does have some very personal value to us as viewers. So it might be important to lay out some context for how the two of us came across the show and maybe give a hint as to why it means so much to us. That's absolutely correct. Uh, we're going to try to avoid spoilers throughout the series and especially in this episode, which means we're probably going to be talking around some of the important parts of Evangelion. Please forgive me for being a little oblique. I guess I'd like to start to ask, Ian, how did you find Evangelion? I had many friends more attuned to technology than I was growing up. Those friends happened to also be very into anime. I think a, a pretty common trope that most people growing up in the 90s would recall, you know, the same kind of people that knew a lot about how to get on the internet early on, probably then quickly figured out how to get into Japanese animation. While I was aware of Dragon Ball Z from like the early Sunday morning airings that it had on public television at the time, 
I didn't really know much about anime beyond that until a friend of mine showed me Neon Genesis Evangelion on DVD some years later. He introduced it to me in a very kind of ass backwards way. I watched episodes out of order. I saw the ending of the show before I saw the beginning of the show. But just from that, I was hooked. I was hooked by the the boldness of the style, the experimental leaps in form that the show would take, as well as just the absolutely mind-boggling action sequences that the show had on offer. It took me many years to get back to it, but eventually once I was a bit more steady on the internet myself, I found it on YouTube. I would find old rips of it that made it onto mega upload, stuff like that, and watched the show for myself when I was about 19 and fell completely in love with it. As, as a musician, I started writing songs inspired by Evangelion. It became like a big part of my creative life going forward. And then, you know, after many years of kind of not thinking about it, it got added to Netflix, which is when you reached out to me about maybe doing a podcast about Evangelion. So how did you find out about Evangelion, Joseph? It's interesting. I didn't know that you actually watched the end first. Sorry, I am going to answer your question. It's just that's fascinating. To me. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's not the way I would recommend anyone else watching the show. And if you're listening along, definitely don't watch the show that way, go episode to episode the same way that we are. Yeah, to be clear, here's here's the format we're going to we're going to use going forward. The first part of the episode is going to be like a, a brief, maybe less brief as it goes on because it just gets more complicated. Recap of a pair of episodes. We're not going to do like one episode of the podcast per episode of the show because the episodes are short. They're like 20, 22 minutes long. And then we're going to talk about it. Now that I've completely uh, again, avoided Ian's question. I'm going to answer it. I was a big fan of Japanese giant monster movies. I was like a special effect movie nerd when I was a kid. And I managed to go to a convention when I was still in junior high. My grandmother, rest in peace, took me. And I wound up getting a few bootleg VHS tapes and a few official VHS tapes of some man-in-suit giant monster movies. And attached to the beginning of one was the trailer to Evangelion. I believe this trailer was just made for the U.S. distribution office. And this would have been like the first time they struck it to VHS in America. And I was just floored. I probably watched that trailer more than I watched the movie it was in front of. Because I can't, I can't tell you what movie it was in front of. I tried like hell to find this fucking show. And that proved really difficult because unlike Dragon Ball Z, unlike Sailor Moon, unlike Robotech, finding Evangelion in America was really difficult. It didn't show on American TV until much later. And even then, it was pretty heavily edited. It's, it's normal for like anime to be fairly decently like clipped to air on American cable, especially in the early 2000s because there's some cultural differences that just don't translate. But Evangelion is like, especially how do we want, how do I want to say this? Controversial button pushing triggering. What do you want to say? All of those things are true. I was just going to say something like it cuts against the grain of typical, as far as my life goes, Midwestern, like American milk toast aesthetics, which is why I liked it. That's why I wanted it. Right. Like, that's why I tried like hell to find it. And it's DVDs sold out pretty quickly. And so did its VHSs. It was like it flew off the shelves and wasn't pressed that that often. 
So I pirated it first, unlike unlike a lot of people. So I think I watched some of the episodes, maybe not totally out of order, but in super low quality rips off like Kazaa and LimeWire. How many viruses did I get trying to finish Evangelion? <laughs> I don't even know. Yeah, it's important to kind of put into context that both of us watched the show very much as millennial anime fans. Yeah, young millennial anime fans. We watched the show around the time that we were the age of the show's protagonist, Shinji Ikari, and we're now re-watching the show when we're the age of some of the supporting characters. Um, and that is going to affect our reading, and I want that to be context to some extent, because we are sort of nostalgic about the show. We do really, really enjoy the show. We do have fond memories of what it meant to us when we watched it early on. That said, we're going to be taking a elevated approach to analysis that is going to bring in a lot of stuff, not just from the show, but from outside of it. In the early stages of this podcast, we talk a lot about the film techniques used. And so as a result, we are, we're going to draw a lot from mecha anime. We're going to draw a lot from kaiju filmmaking and action filmmaking in general. And as we go, we're going to talk more about the philosophical, heady, more abstract stuff that the show is going to get into. So we're going to start talking about Kierkegaard and Hegel and all that sort of stuff. But even if that's not your bag, I think that if you're going along with us and watching the show, you should find your own ways into it that will be approachable and useful. And you can just use our ideas kind of as a jumping off point. Do you think that's a fair assessment? I think that's a fair assessment. It's interesting that like what makes this show so unique is, is it does have this uncanny ability to worm its way into your brain and stay there. Full disclosure, we like we try like hell to like figure out what that ability is. I personally don't wouldn't say that I was totally successful at at figuring that out. But like the elusiveness of it is part of the fucking appeal. Well, I don't even think that our take on it is necessarily a finalized one. I think that it's it remains vital even after having recorded an entire analysis of the show, I still feel like there's more to uncover. And so I'm really excited about what happens when we share our thoughts with you, the listener, and hear what you have to say about it. It's a show that really does have a lot of sentimental value to the the two of us. Yeah, it's true. It, I think, speaks to a very particular kind of emotional state of being. As we mentioned in the summary, Anna was very depressed before making this particular show. And so if you happen to have had any kind of struggles with mental illness or senses of alienation or a sense of purposelessness in your life, I think that this show has a lot to say to you, despite being initially appearing just to be a genre exercise of big robot fights, big monster. It's got a lot more than that going on, but I also don't want to discredit the pure unadulterated raw appeal of watching a giant robot fight a giant monster like that shit's super sick too interestingly enough now now multiple times evangelion has been showed on cable in the united states but much 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 later than other contemporary sort of edgy for for want of a better term like dorm room poster anime series like adult swim 
launched on Cartoon Network with Cowboy Bebop on it, right? They couldn't get Evangelion on Adult Swim until, I'm going to pull a number out of my butt, forgive me if I'm wrong, but I think it's like eight, nine years later, right? Evangelion was like, the, the, the animation was no longer cutting edge by the time it like made it on to basic cable in the United States. And for like a show that had such enormous hurdles reaching people in America... It's still probably one of the most popular pieces of Japanese animation in this country. It's not Akira, but it's getting up there, which is remarkable considering that things like Akira and Cowboy Bebop are, compared to it, relatively digestible. Yeah, this this show has some various genre related hurdles that might be tough for someone who hasn't watched anime to get over the way that it jumps around tone the pace of the editing i think unlike something like cowboy bebop which consciously is drawing from a long history of american filmmaking neon genesis evangelion is not as interested in playing to western tropes and so it may be somewhat confusing to someone who is unfamiliar with the particular rhythms of anime. Do you think that's fair to say? Totally. That's but that's why we're doing this. I get I guess yeah, this is in a weird way this is like a an a letter of encouragement to our I don't know about our younger selves, but at least my younger self, right? Or someone who might be a lot like my younger self but is a zoomer, I suppose. Then again, I don't know if that I don't know if that person exists. <laughs> also, not like young me needed any encouragement. I like could not wait for the last few episodes of this series to finish fucking downloading uh, over very basic broadband. So is there anything else you want to give our audiences a head up, heads up about before we jump into the real meat of the show? Nothing beyond that, like, you and I have been friends for, like, a long time before we started to do this together. And so if we have, like, a particular rapport... Welcome to welcome to the fun club. That's very true. Uh, you'll have to, of course, excuse the two of us having fun. But, but I hope that you have fun with us because this show is heavy, but it's also fun. And I think even the heavy parts will be more enjoyable and, and more gratifying if you come along with us. I hope that that's the case anyway. Yeah, and I, I, I hope that, you know, as, as we go along, we'll just be able to sneak in little bits of fan service for those in the know as well. Thank you for listening. If you liked the episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. If you want to share your thoughts on the show or about anything really, email us at humaninstrumentalitypodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at another Avapod and on Instagram at Human Instrumentality Pod. Extra special thanks to Kira Anderson for the graphics and web design. See you next week.